Hello and welcome to another VW podcast. This is Office Hours, and today we are reviewing Chapter 9 of Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. So we're at Chapter 9, which means we're through Chapters 1 through 8. Did you know that we're over halfway done, Aaron? Uh, in terms of chapters or in terms of pages? In terms of chapters, there are 16 chapters, so we're halfway done. Well, after 9, over halfway done. And in terms of pages, I believe we're past halfway. Oh well. yeah, because we got a lot of pages of index glossary. Ooh, did you see that glossary at the back? Uh oh, yeah, check that out. Did, what was your thoughts when you were a little kid? I would say when you were a teenager, you had to read books, and then you would you look peek to the end to see if there was a long appendix or afterword, or would you wait and hopefully get excited so you don't have to read 60% of the pages and then you'd get to the uh, glossary at the end? No, I'd always go back and check. Check to yeah, check first. brutal this was going to be. Right. Well, this book I don't think is brutal at all, and I think the podcast is pretty popular as evidenced by the hundreds and hundreds of, of downloads. Thousands. <laughs> hundreds of thousands. One of those words is accurate. Uh, of downloads that we're getting on a weekly basis. Really appreciate everyone listening. I am running into people, not just random people on the street. No one, no random person on the street knows what this is. But I am running into people in our ecosystem who say that they're listening. Uh, most of them because they're our clients and we make them do it. But people are saying that they're listening. It's helpful. I think my mom knows who I am. So that's pretty cool. She, she's been, you know, she's been listening. So... Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Let's jump into chapter nine. So chapter nine talks about crowdfunding, and I really we can go off the uh, off the script here, off the away from just what they wrote in the book. They only took a couple of pages to cover crowdfunding. We've got a long history with crowdfunding here, a long and not that deep history because I don't know that anyone does. So crowdfunding first became mainstream in 2010, 2011, which started to gain a lot of momentum, namely at the uh, congressional level to institute some sort of crowdfunding laws in the United States. Now, you've got different types of crowdfunding. You've got product founding and equity crowdfunding. And all the stuff we're going to talk about with the SEC and the Jobs Act is equity crowdfunding. But let's start with product crowdfunding. You know, one of the reasons equity crowdfunding started to gain that traction and started to become a thing that, you know, Congress and, and the federal government started to address was because of the popularity of you know, what I call reward-based crowdfunding, which is the Kickstarters, the Indiegogos. And, you know, those had a nice run and continue to have a nice run of success. And so people started to think, well, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if rather than um, getting a mug or rather than getting, you know, one of the first versions of whatever product, I could get a piece of ownership of the company? One of the things that I really liked about this chapter was a sentence that they said in the Third full paragraph on page 125 to quote, in the United States, if you are selling security, you need to register the security with the Securities Exchange Commission unless you have an exemption not to. I feel like Aaron and I repeat that to a client every day. Then the last sentence of that paragraph says, the original rules for registering securities were defined in the Securities Act of 1933. And while they have evolved, they are still based on rules negotiated more than 80 years ago. This is something we talk about all the time. We are basing our rules for raising equity on legislation that was passed over 80 years ago and was passed in the wake of the greatest economic depression in the history of this country. It's absolutely ridiculous. However, they are the rules. They are the rules. And I think I'm a lot less um, quick to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Obviously, yeah, they were passed in the wake of a huge economic crisis. Um, that being said, I think 
for the most part, they are um, very well-intentioned, regardless of how they actually play out um, in in the real world. And so, yeah, it's a pain and it's um, cumbersome to either have to register or find an exemption and then qualify for that exemption. And, you know, there are certain requirements. Um, but in the long run, it serves to protect the investors. Right. So while I personally may have great issue with the way these things can play out, and I do believe at times they're a they're a barrier to capital raising for really for early stage or real small companies. The fact is they're the rules and you have to abide by them. Until they change, there is no workaround. You have to be cognizant of SEC and blue sky or state level securities regulations and make sure that you are that you're following them and you're and you're doing your capital raises in accordance with them. They're not hard to hit, right? If you have good counsel, if you're wise about it, these things aren't hard to do. Not hitting these rules, not being in line with these rules could be really, really dangerous to your company. So anyway, so back to, co- to crowdfunding and we're going to get into equity crowdfunding. I want to talk for a sec though about product crowdfunding, Kickstarter, Indiegogo. These are the most popular ones. Have you ever bought anything on one of these websites? Yeah. Aaron? I'm actually waiting on a product right now from Kickstarter. The speaker cooler? No, no. I'm waiting on a, uh, you know, I have the old school Bose noise canceling mm-hmm. headphones, and with the new iPhones, I guess not new anymore. The when the iPhone Seven came out, it didn't have a headphone jack. So rather than use that dongle that converts a lightning port to a three and a half millimeter headphone jack. They now have created, and it's not new technology, but a, a way that you plug your headphones into a Bluetooth adapter and it makes your headphones essentially wireless. Oh, gotcha. So it just picks up off the Bluetooth from your phone. Right. I've ordered a few things off Kickstarter. Kickstarter is really an Indiegogo, and we can. I know there's other ones out there. Uh, we want to lump all these things into one. For a product space, these are really a way to get your product out there and really just to do pre-sales. If you're a tech company who's trying to build a software as a service business, Kickstarter is not going to work for you. I just don't know any product that consumers are going to want to buy that software as a service. Maybe if you are a mobile app developer or a game, you're developing a game, excuse me, a consumer game or some sort of software that consumers use, possibly. But really, Kickstarter and, and Indiegogo are for consumer products. From a company standpoint, they are fantastic. Fantastic. You get pre-sales basically off a hype video. You don't have to give up any equity. I don't know what happens if you don't fulfill your sales, right? This has happened a few times. And I feel like we're still kind of lost in litigation on these matters. Uh, so we don't have a lot of clients who are real consumer facing. So we have we do have a couple clients who have done this and yeah. done this successfully, right? They right. raised ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars right. on Kickstarter, or we had one client raise about thirty grand just through their own website. Yeah. Just drawing attention to it, but doing a pre-sale campaign. Interesting about that client, they ended up pivoting and just sent all the money back, yeah. which is smart. So if you're using Kickstarter to raise money for your product, until you deliver your product, try not to use that money. I think that's really interesting what they say in this chapter about, you know, essentially Kickstarter and Indiegogo are just pre-order campaigns. And if you have enough uh, traction in the marketplace to be able to conduct a successful pre-order campaign without Kickstarter and Indiegogo, if you can do it on your own website, that seems like a much better alternative simply because you're not having to give a cut to Kickstarter or Indiegogo. That's pretty cool. And, and you don't have to play the, yeah, the 10% to them. I like to take a look at Kickstarter and Indiegogo every couple months just to see what cool new tech is out there. I think they're neat. I think the people out there are very forward thinking. You know, you've got a couple of companies, Oculus and Oculus Rift and, uh, and uh, Pebble Watch that raised you know tens of millions of dollars on these things. 
One of my uh, one of my favorite Indiegogo campaigns was the uh, crowdfunding of Super Troopers Two <laughs> on Indiegogo. So there's a lot of projects, artistic projects on there. Just so you guys can understand, we funded six hundred or a thousand dollars into Super Troopers Two uh, two and three quarter years ago, mm-hmm. right? And we are supposed to get a custom video made, and they are still making the movie, and they never sent us our video, and I think they sent us our money back. Yeah. But we love Super Troopers. We love Super Troopers. Yeah. So if they're listening, uh, we're still willing to crowdfund. Which I imagine they probably are listening. Probably are not. Oh. All right. So equity product crowdfunding. Also note, there's also uh, charity crowdfunding. You see this a lot. I think this is a really neat deal. The power of using the crowd to raise money for people. And people do this through different social outlets. There are specific ones. GoFundMe does things like this. So big supporter of it. If you're a client of ours and you want to use equity or product crowdfunding, fantastic. The biggest piece of advice we can give you is go get an amazing hype video done. It's going to cost you probably five to 10 grand for that video and another five to 10 grand for the proper marketing of your Kickstarter campaign. Keep that in mind. Uh, if you... If you look at any of the data on these things, you got to hit a certain threshold of funding, get to a certain percentage within your first couple of days in order to get the right momentum going. If you're an investor, you're probably not asking us about product crowdfunding. So let's move on to equity crowdfunding. Let me give you guys some brief background in equity crowdfunding. It's something we've been involved with for a very long time. About five, six years ago, when people started talking about this, there was a, actually it was 2011, I think, when I first got into this. Uh, some people here in North Texas got together and said, hey, let's get together and talk about this. So I started meeting with people. Next thing you know, we put together a conference in Austin, and I believe this was 2012, to talk about crowdfunding. And, and the firm helped to sponsor that, and I was a panelist. We got several other speakers from around the country to come in and talk about this. At that point in time, they were taking comments for the Jobs Act. And the Jobs Act, well, they were taking comments for equity crowdfunding. We didn't know it was going to be part of the Jobs Act. But the SEC was reviewing things, and they were supposed to come out with some sort of determination or proposed regulations to push through Congress in six months. And then it was six months later, and then it was six months later. So there was all this thought and momentum to do it. But then you had the other parties, not necessarily who were counter to crowdfunding, but who just wanted to make sure that it was done correctly. You had them step in and they wanted to make sure that we weren't going to be in a situation where people were losing their fortunes because they were just backing all kinds of crazy, you know, marketing hyped uh, ideas that really didn't have a full company behind them. And then if you are going to do equity crowdfunding, you're not going to probably have a very personal or close relationship between the investor and the company. So what kind of protections do we put in place for the company? And I certainly understand that, but it just took a very long time. So in the wake of that, states started coming out and say, hey, you know what? Let's just go ahead and pass our own crowdfunding rules. And a handful of states did that. And Texas eventually did it. And Texas was 13th or 14th. I can't remember. But the first couple of states that did it got some traction because then companies in those states just said, okay, cool. We'll go do equity crowdfunding. Now, it was state to st- it was just intrastate, right? So you could be a, let's assume Indiana was one of the first states, I think. Indiana company selling to Indiana investors. You couldn't be a Delaware company selling to Indiana investors. You couldn't be an Indiana company selling to Michigan investors. And to be clear, that's how they get around the federal that's restriction. Correct. Is that if if it's happening solely within a state's borders, then it's subject to state law and it's I guess exempt from federal law. That's correct. So it's state intrust state exempt from federal law. Well, by the time Texas passed, finally, just right after that, the SEC pushed through their, their proposed regulations. They, they got uh, rolled out as part of the JOBS Act. And so the state crowdfunding thing kind of went by the wayside because if you're a Texas company, you can only raise money from Texas investors, but you can go to another portal and raise money from investors all over the country. Why wouldn't you do that? Right? You have a much, much larger 
uh, much larger investor market base. So now you do have federal crowdfunding. And I believe that the hopes for this thing were very, very high. I remember people saying that this was going to be the wild west of investing. It's going to open doors to capital for all, for all sorts of companies. It's going to make it so much easier for, for smaller companies to raise capital from a legal perspective, from a cost perspective, from a, just a resources perspective, trying to find a credit or trying to find qualified investors. It really hasn't done that right now that we're a couple years into it, Aaron, We've done since even since you've been here, probably a couple of hundred capital raises. How many of those have had a crowdfunding? Zero. No one. No. I mean, not a true crowdfunding. Right. Well, we've done some with. We've done a five. We've done five hundred six C offerings, which allow general solicitation, but are limited solely to accredited Great investors. Great point. Great point. And let's get into that. So yeah, you know what? Aaron's right. On a true crowdfunding with unaccredited investors, we haven't done any. So if that goes to show you, because we do a lot of early stage small financings here. Well, the, the problem is the true crowdfunding, the I guess what they're calling Title Three, has a dollar limit. You can only raise a million dollars over 12 months. By the time you get your legal costs and your marketing costs and stuff built into that, that's hard to do. So, you know, Aaron makes a great point. It's a nuance I wanted to explain because I did note in here when they talked about AngelList. So it said... The second crowdfunding approach popularized by AngelList is equity crowdfunding. This is that page 125. And AngelList has been along for around has been around for a long time. And AngelList was real forward thinking with crowdfunding, but AngelList is just a bunch of really rich guys coming together to do deals. These guys were already seeing early stage deals uh, on their own accord. So I don't know how much crowdfunding really made an impact on them, and I don't think the crowdfunding was definitely came out after the rules release after AngelList got popular. So people were doing that. So that's the problem that crowdfunding is attempting to address is you have a bunch of high net worth individuals who are just getting richer because they're the ones who can invest in the deals because that's what the law says. You have to be a credit investor. And they're the ones who are seeing the deals. So equity crowdfunding was trying to break that down. Unfortunately, it hasn't been that successful. And I think, you know... I think given the federal regulations surrounding, you know, true crowdfunding, I think that does uh, swing the pendulum in favor of, you know, intrastate crowdfunding. Because, listen, if you're going to be limited on, you know, on a federal crowdfunding offering to a million dollars, why wouldn't you just go, you know, it, it seems like crowdfunding would be a better tool for a local business that wants to get a lot of people who you know will act as brand ambassadors and feel like they have some skin in the game because they own a little piece of the business. So that makes it a lot more, um, I think, interesting on a local level and less so on a national level. I agree with Aaron there. I think the right crowdfunding play would be a local restaurant who's really popular and wants to expand to a second location and you're crowdfunding for people in your neighborhood, right? Or from your, your patrons. Or... A, a liquor company that's going to open up a bottling or you know a, a manufacturing facility here in town and that way your shareholders can be local they can come and check it out they can you know see how the process works they can buy booze from the uh, from the facility you can have a shareholder appreciation day that's correct yeah. so i think ideas like that make a lot of sense you know widespread equity crowdfunding i think it's hard to do so here's the next part of this we get calls all the time actually less and less now but for a couple of years there we're getting calls once a week right can you help me with crowdfunding if you are interested in crowdfunding and it can be done well there's one industry where it's done a lot which is real estate yeah real estate equity crowdfunding seems to work and there are a handful of real estate focused crowdfunding websites out there 
If you just Google real estate crowdfunding, five or six will pop up. And just this just allows an everyday Joe investor to get involved with a high rise in Manhattan or a, you know, a golf uh, master plan community in Florida. And you're just going to invest 50 grand or 100 grand and you're going to earn some 8, 10, 12%. And you know, it looks like a traditional real estate deal. It just kind of expands the scope of the, uh, or expands the, the reach of the deals that you're seeing. If you are looking into crowdfunding, Google crowdfunding platforms, the platforms are very robust and very informative, right? So you don't need to come to us to decide what platform you want to use. Once you've chosen a platform, you go to a seed invest, you go to one of the other platforms out there, you can, seed invest will tell you, give you some ideas how to structure your deal. Then you call us and say, okay, I've decided that this is what I'm going to do. Come help me get the legal paperwork in place for this. You know, one thing they don't cover in this chapter, which I think makes sense from from where the authors are sitting, is they don't talk about the pitfalls of crowdfunding if you're an LLC or if your tax is a partnership. At the end of every year, you have to send all of the people who own a piece of the business a K-1 so they can report the earnings or losses on their personal income taxes. If you're crowdfunding and you have, you know, you raise money from 150 people on a crowdfunding platform, that's 150 more people that you have to send a K-1 to at the end of the year. But if you're a corporation and let's just say you raise $1,000 from 100 people and that's how you raised $100,000 or, uh, you know, $10,000 from 100 people, that's how you raised a million dollars. That's a lot of shareholders having your cap table. Now, I think what all the platforms do is they put those 100 people into a special purpose entity. And that entity, there'd just be one point of contact for the company. And the portal will answer that. But then if you're an investor, you really don't have that much connection to the company, right? Because you're one level removed. So I think the intention of crowdfunding is there. I don't know that it's quite there yet. This is something that we've never really talked about, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts. Where do you see securities regulations going in the next three to five years, maybe 10 years with the advent of crowdfunding? And it is so much easier to get information back and forth through the internet. I think a lot of it depends on what the economy does. Um, You know, I think a lot of people are saying, oh, we're in another tech bubble. We're in another tech bubble. If that ends up being true, then I don't think there's going to be any sort of restriction on, um, you know, what information you have to provide to your investors and how you can provide that and, you know, any easing of the restrictions. If it doesn't play out to be true uh, and we're not in a tech bubble and things continue to go well, then I think um, we might see the federal government start to look at easing the restrictions. I'm not sure on the crowdfunding side, just because it's so new, I think they're going to be very hesitant to to ease restrictions there just yet. I think Aaron's right. I think it does depend on the economy. I'm pretty bullish on where the economy is going. I believe they will start to ease restrictions maybe by lowering the accredited investor limitations or come up with a separate definition. You know, we have that term sophisticated investor, but they never really define that. So maybe you start to focus more on what a sophisticated investor is, someone who's got a certain level of education, who is capable of taking financial matters into their own hands. Yeah. And it would make sense to me if it was an either or. You either had to be accredited or sophisticated Mm -hmm. just because, you know, the accreditation aspect makes sense. You know, if, if you have a certain amount of money or your income is above a certain level, then you can afford to lose some of that in a risky startup investment. Um, 
but also at the same time, even if you don't have that much money, but if, you know, if you're very involved in, you know, startups and startup investing, then yeah, you probably are better able to gauge whether or not something is a good investment. And while I do get frustrated that we have these laws that are so old and they're still governing how we make investments today or how companies raise money today, the overall effect is pretty positive. You know, I, I think we do a good job of forcing companies to have proper disclosures to make sure that they're doing diligence on their investors to to determine whether their investors are fit for this type of investment. From an investor standpoint, I believe that the rules are you know, they're, they're strong enough to make sure that the investor has accurate information or adequate information in order to, to invest in a deal. So here's the last thing we'll, we'll leave you with. If you're a company and you're not aware of these regulations, then you're doing something wrong. And if you're an investor and you're not asking the companies you're investing in, hey, what are your securities exemptions? Or are you filing any securities exemptions? Then you're not doing your due diligence because you want to make sure that the companies either are well-informed enough to know this or have counsel who's looking into these things. Every single security either has to be registered with the SEC or the state or it has to be exempt. Um, those exemptions aren't hard to find, but you got to know where to look. So in closing, product crowdfunding is fantastic. If you are a consumer product company, definitely look into that. Equity crowdfunding makes sense in some instances. There's a lot of information available for you. So just go out there and research equity crowdfunding websites. Email those guys. Look for references. Ask them to talk to other founders who have used it. Talk to your attorney about it. As we come to a close, I want to include here a reference to a link we have on our website. We have broken out different types of securities exemptions or different types of offering exemptions. It's a chart on our website. If you go to startups, click on Vela Wood Law, or excuse me, navigate to VelaWoodLaw.com, click on startups at the top, and then you'll see the uh, securities exemption chart. I think that might be helpful. It's a little thick, but it's important that you start to familiarize yourself with these laws. And then hopefully by the time you talk to your attorney about it, you're really starting to understand them. As always, our show notes will be uh, included at, in a blog on our website. And then there'll be a link in the iTunes episode description. For questions or comments, email us at podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. The name of this podcast is VelaWood Office Hours. And I want to let you know about an event we have coming up that you might be interested in. Next Wednesday, September 27th from 6 to 8 p.m., we're going to do a feature called Two VCs and a Lawyer, and it's going to be Sammy Abdul of Blossom Street Ventures, Stephen Hayes of Deep Space Ventures, and myself, and we'll just be sitting rapping about VC-type stuff. So that'll be Industrious Coworking in downtown Dallas. Again, that's Wednesday, September 27th from 6 to 8 p.m. And we'll have a, an Eventbrite link to register in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Vailawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at